Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning with hearts ready to submit to you as proper authority in our lives. You alone are worthy to be praised and worshiped as rightful King and Lord. The bondage, and, the bondage and chains of sin had a hold on us that none of us could have ever hoped to break on our own, and you set us free through your amazing act of love on the cross. May we always and forever voluntarily bow our knees to you as our good and gracious master. I thank you, Jesus, for the amazing work that you are doing through this church at all levels. I thank you for the work that you are doing in the kids' ministry where our kids are taught the true gospel at the earliest age possible. It blesses us, Lord, to see our kids excited to come to church and be with your people. I thank you for the work happening in the Rooted Group as these young men and women didn't come to events because of the social aspect, but they have a hunger and thirst to learn about you and how to walk as true disciples. I thank you for the solidifying work you're doing through those in our church that are newer to the faith and their eagerness to be in the word and learn about discipleship. I thank you for the sanctifying work that you are doing in our members that have been walking with you for most of their lives as you continue to draw them near to yourself through daily sanctification as they continue to, to strive to better understand you and your holy word. Father God, we ask for your forgiveness this morning. As Americans in 2023, it is easy for us to get caught up in the ideologies that tell us that we not only can be, but also should be our own masters that don't have to submit to anybody or anything. May we be a church that recognizes there is one King and Lord, Jesus Christ, your Son, who you have rightfully placed on the throne. May we even in this very moment repent and turn away from any activities or ideologies that are not honoring to you so that we may fully submit ourselves to your holy Lordship. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for all of the gospel preaching churches that you have sprinkled throughout the world and the opportunities that we have to partner with them in the work of spreading the gospel and discipling one another. May we not get caught up in the differences of our liturgy or secondary issues, but may we unite fully in the primary work of your church, which is to go forth and make disciples in your name. We pray these things in your precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. You can have a seat. And you can open your Bibles to Romans 6, starting in verse 12. It is good to see all of your faces here this morning. I apologize for my voice going in and out. Uh, it'll be about 16 weeks worth of me having a voice that goes in and out because uh, of coaching. Coaching has begun. So, uh, praise God for microphones. Well, last week, my wife and I were blessed to go see the off-Broadway production of Les Mis, Les Miserables. How many of you have seen that before? Anyone? How many of you have watched the movies? How many of you have read the books, or volumes, I should say? Good, very good, all right. Well, if you're unfamiliar with it, it is based on an epic novel of the same uh, name where the main storyline revolves around the, the life of a French peasant and his desire for redemption. It's a beautiful story. There's tons of notes of grace in the midst of it. But the story as a whole is set in 19th century France, about 25 to 50 years after the French Revolution, and directly after the rise and fall of Napoleon. Now this was a period of time in which the cry for liberty from the common people thundered against the system of meritocracy, where those born into privilege were the ones who gained high standing, and those born into poverty were held to positions of servitude. It became a big gap of power in the people. 
In other words, the play was set in the scene of lords, masters, and peasants or servants. And the cry of Viva la Liberté, or Long Live Freedom, that echoed forth during these historical revolutions, it became a rallying cry. It declared that every human should be free from cruel and oppressive rule. It was such a powerful force that it quickly impacted our own country's revolution from the tyranny of British rule. We have much to be thankful for in that. But as I sat there in the midst of the play, and I listened to the songs, and I watched the crowd interact with this idea of liberty throughout the other topics introduced in the play, and even some lines that were not in the original play that were added in, I found myself wondering what the audience thought the idea of liberty actually means. Did they think it meant liberty from tyrannical rule or liberty from any rule whatsoever? I mean, we did watch it in Portland, <laughs> which is the world capital for anarchy, right? You see, liberty can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. Take our own country's history, for example. The founders of this country never viewed liberty as freedom from any form of government, any form of rule, or any form of lawfulness. That is why they worked so hard to build the government and founded upon a fair rule of law. At least in its structure, it was to be a government of servants that served the people, rather than the other way around, something that our government today needs to remember. But we live in a day and an age, and even a part of the country, where the cry for liberty has been taken another step further. It has been taken to the place of complete anarchy. Liberty to many now means the right to be Lord and to answer to no one. Now, before you think I am making a political statement here, please understand that this misuse of liberty is true in many cases, regardless of political affiliation. Both sides of the aisle are always fighting for liberty. One side wants to remove the government to the greatest degree possible, so they might have the ultimate liberty. The other side wants the government to be overpowering, to protect certain liberties. Both are fighting for their own lordship when you get to the extremes. Our society has moved from a place of simply desiring just law and rule to a place where any rule over me as an individual at all is oppressive. And this perversion of topics like liberty and freedom has even, I believe, crept into the American church in a way that has greatly enabled the lie and heresy of what's called antinomianism. And if you're unfamiliar with this, we've talked about it before, but it's the attitude of anti-law that the Apostle Paul battled against just as much as he battled against legalism. And before any of us suggest that we have not been affected by it, I want us to honestly ask ourselves, how do you personally feel about submitting to Christ and his church? Is there any part of us that believes that part of the liberty Christ purchased on the cross was the liberty to do as we please and not have to answer to anyone? I know this to be the case in the church at large because of how vehement the response was in most of the evangelical church, or is in most of the evangelical church, to the topic of church membership. When we put it in a few years ago, a number of people stated they would absolutely not take part because their understanding of grace meant that they would never need to be held accountable. A gospel of Jesus as Lord exercising his rule over his people is anathema 
to many American Christians. And therein lies the confusion for humanity to believe that we have the option of refusing the rule of anyone and everyone means we have completely bought the lie of Satan that this is possible. But friends, in fact, in point of fact, it is impossible. Our innate being as humankind is as creations, as servants of authority. We are built to follow, serve, and submit to an authority. It is in our DNA. The very institutions that God put in place of the family, the church, and the state dictate that this is so. So we must go back to this idea of liberty and freedom that is so prevalent in the discussion of the Bible and ask, well, it says that we're freed, so what are we actually freed from? What did we gain liberty from, and how did we gain that liberty? And what we'll find is that what we gained liberty from is one oppressive master, which is our own sin, our own lawlessness, and our own rebellion, our own lordship. That's what we gained freedom from. And we only gained that freedom because we were purchased and bought into submission to a better benevolent master. Now, this is so important for us to grasp in our Christian walk because as we've been looking at the topic of lordship, we must recognize that we will always be in submission to some form of lord. But the question then arises, who is the Lord to whom you submit? Is it Jesus Christ? Or is it our sin? Is it our anger? Is it our addictions? Our idolatry? Our rebellion? Our self-isolation? Perhaps it's something good like our children. Or maybe something fun like a hobby. Or maybe it's our worldly solutions to brokenness, or maybe simply it's our own rugged individualism. What is your Lord? To whom do you submit? It seems to me that the way that this has become most active in the church is that we have divided our lives into areas in which Christ has some rule, but in all other areas we've made a sacred secular divide, and we run the rest of our lives as if they are not under his lordship. We have determined how much of our lives we will give to Christ rather than submitting to his declaration that to call him Lord is to submit all of our lives to him. Our second reading declared this to be so. Wherever you find yourself, when the Lord saves you, is where he is Lord. Our external environment might change, but his lordship, friends, is a matter of the heart. And so this morning, I want to consider the words of Paul the Apostle as he delves into this topic and explains to us what it means to have Jesus as Lord and what he will tell us, what we will see is that to have Jesus as Lord is to be liberated from rebellion and given as tribute to God. To have Jesus as Lord is to be liberated from rebellion and given as tribute to God. As we go through this topic today, I want to challenge each of us to check our defenses and open up our ears. For this topic, I guarantee you, even maybe more than what we have discussed in this series so far, will spark our defensiveness and rebellion like no other. And so I want you, if you declare to have Jesus as Lord, to see if what I present to you today is in the text. And if it is so, then apply it to your own life. If it is not, then come tell me so that I can become a better pastor and preacher. Don't dismiss it as one person's view. 
see if it is in the inspired word of God. Can we agree on that? All right. So let's begin in Romans 6, starting in verse 12. And we're going to go through verse 23. Let's hear Paul's discussion of these topics, and let's pray together that this text will find hearts ready to be changed. This is God's word. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. What we see first is consideration of the liberty God has given. Consideration of the liberty God has given. We see this in the first three verses. Now at the end of chapter five, we see that something is happening here and on into six. And when we look at our text, we realize that this is probably not a self-contained thought, that it's attached to what's above it. Let not sin, therefore. There's another therefore, like last week. It attaches to what's above it. But I've given us just enough of the passage to help us set up the literary context here. And so we go to the end of chapter 5 there, and we notice that Paul is comparing the Mosaic law and the grace of Christ. And he finishes with this statement in Romans 5.21. He says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is personifying law and grace as if they are rulers, but really using them to symbolize ourselves in our sinful rebellion and Christ in his gracious salvation. And then the entrance into our text comes from this next thought. Remember that the situation in Rome was that the Jews had previously been forced to leave, and the Gentile Christians were left as the only people in the church at the time. But now the Jews have returned to the city and to the local churches of Rome as well. And where the Jews leaned heavily toward legalism and relying on the Mosaic law in their view of Christianity, the Gentiles did the opposite and le le uh, led towards, leaned towards libertinism. 
And so Paul asks this in Romans 6, 1 through 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The line of argumentation then moves this idea that because Christ has united us with himself by the Holy Spirit, we have participated in his death and in his resurrection. We have died, in a sense. And so he then says, look at verses 6 through 7. He then says in 6 through 7, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice this. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Did you catch that? The liberation that we have been given in Christ is from our sin and from our enslavement to its rebellious nature. The conclusion then comes to, uh, that he then comes to is the therefore that we read next in verses 12 through 14, the opening lines of our own text. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This portion begins the theme that we will see in the rest of our selected text. Throughout it, we will see words repeat, words that speak to sovereign rule over subjects. Already we've seen the words reign and obey and dominion. Obey and obedience will appear five times in our text, and we'll see the discussion of subjects who are slaves eight times. We'll also hear of freedom four times. These are statements of rule, of authority, of reign. And Paul is also using these words in contrasting statements throughout this section. We're going to see sin versus righteousness, death versus life, law versus freedom, all of this is meant to point us to the reality that we will be subject to something that rules our life. But the question is, what will it be? And Paul's writing is exquisite in its ability to paint a picture. Pause for a moment on verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He pictures our earthly, physical nature and points out that at the core, there is a throne upon which our Lord, our creator, our provider should reign. But our tendency is to let our sin, our rebellion against God's rule, reign upon that throne. In essence, our desire for power and control to make our life what we want it to be, sets itself up over and above Christ himself. And when our rebellious self is enthroned in our lives, it will enact its sovereignty based on its whims. And those whims are usually labeled with, but I deserve dot, dot, dot. Here Paul labels them as passions. This word in the Greek specifically means wanting what has been forbidden or something that is a possession of someone else. It is all that drives us to be Lord over God and others. And he continues this imagery of a Lord and their subject by next speaking of a tribute. 
A tribute was when a conquered subject brought to their reigning sovereign a gift to show their allegiance and their humility to the monarch. To state clearly, you reign over me and I will do as you ask, even serve at your request. That is what a tribute is. In doing so, they were stating that they were loyal to the commanding rule of that sovereign. Look at verse 13. Do not present. You can imagine a a man on his knees prostrate before a king seated upon a throne presenting a gift. What is the gift here? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul only gives two contrasting options here. We can be subject to sin and present our bodies as weapons to wage war on its behalf as part of the kingdom of darkness, or we can give the tribute to the Lord who has brought us from death to life through the salvation of the cross to wage war on his behalf. There is no third option to wage war as our own Lord. There is no third option to wage war as our own Lord. We are either competing on behalf of allegiance to the kingdom of darkness, Satan himself, or we are competing on behalf of the Lord himself. Paul finishes with an answer to which option true Christians will take. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. For those whom Christ has died and shed his blood, he has purchased us and brought us into his kingdom and made us subjects to his divine and benevolent lordship. This is the grace that Paul is referencing. To be under the Mosaic law was to sit under the condemnation that came from the reflection that the law brought of our own hearts. You see, the law isn't evil. It simply acts as a mirror and shows us our rebellion. It shows that we are rebellious and wicked and that we have these mortal passions, these desires to want what we can't have, and they are our defining and reigning principles. But that only brought the ministry of death that we talked about last week, to sit and just stare into that mirror and see that brokenness. For Paul will say in Romans 8 that it is impossible for us to do something about that on our own power. It is impossible for us to fight against these passions in our own attempt to live in holiness. The grace of Jesus Christ given to us means that we have been freed from these shackles. We've been given liberty from the tyranny of our own wantonness, our own desires to be Lord, our own sin. And the reigning principle in our life is now the grace of Christ, <clears throat> not condemnation that comes from our inability to keep the moral law of God. And it's by the pouring out of Christ's Holy Spirit into the hearts of those for whom he has died that accomplishes this. And because of this, we have been set free from the tyranny, the oppression of our own sin. Friend, do you ever feel tyrannized by your sin? Do you ever feel oppressed by your sin? I know I do. This is what Christ died to bring us liberty from. And this is good news, is it not? Often the greatest help we can have in the midst of battling our sinful passions is to remind ourselves that it's already been accomplished. 
that we have been set free from sin in order to serve Christ, that we have the option now, prior to Christ pouring out his spirit, we had no option. We were in such bondage to our sin, we would only and could only serve ourselves. But now, we are his. We are no longer our own, and that is good news. It is gospel that we are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, the second half of 19 through 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, I want you to pause for a moment. And I say this as one of you, not sitting in a place of judgment over you. Pause for a moment and think of how much of your week, how much of your day already was mine. I deserve. I have the right. And how much was the Lord's? I know if I look deep into my heart, I realize, Lord, I am constantly turning you away and saying, yeah, Lord, you had that piece. I get this piece. How often do we do that in our life? But that's exactly what he's freed us from. We were bought with the precious price of the blood of our king. It is possible then to follow Paul's command. Let not sin reign. But that is often hard for us to remember, is it not? We want to actually believe that the liberty we have received was liberty from being subject to anyone or anything. And so Paul now needs to address that. He needs to clarify now. And he gives clarification that liberty does not equal lordship. Liberty does not equal your own lordship. You do not get to be the authority on your life. That is not what liberty means. But how much does that get preached at us in our culture as American Christians? Paul rejoins the faulty theology that he mentioned earlier that would hear what he is using symbolically as a metaphor, as an idea that grace and lawfulness are opposed here. That being under grace means a removal of the law, but Jesus was very clear that his reign was not a removal of the law, but a fulfillment of it, an obedience of it. And therefore, those who are his own will live within this similar lawful reign. He says this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he even becomes the lawgiver in this section of Matthew as he brings the new and perfect law, the full clarification of the understanding of the law down from the mountain as if he is the new and better and perfect Moses there on the Sermon on the Mount. The antinomian heretic will say, I am no longer required to obey because God's grace covers all my sin. If I obey, fine, that's great. But if I don't, no big deal. God's grace covers my sin. But Paul is clearly saying that this view is heresy by no means. For if you continue in unrepentant and blatant sin after you have been convicted in the midst of being a justified believer, it suggests that your heart was not ever truly converted to sit under a new Lord. Friends, how quickly should it take conviction to change our hearts and remind us of who we are as Christians. A nanosecond, no longer. When we sit and fight against it, what we're doing is fighting to go back into the chains from which we have been unbound. 
At bare minimum, the conviction present should turn us back towards Christ and away from sin. Our actions, our time, our talents, our treasure, what takes up real estate in our minds, what our affection are towards, these will tell us who our Lord is. And usually, if they're not the Lord, they come back to self. But these are methods of giving our members over, presenting them as weapons in the service of the Lord we serve. And this is his next point in our text. Take a look at verse 16. Excuse me, verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And friends, this is in such simple places. This is where you you come home and you say, you know what, I deserve to not have to disciple my kids tonight. It's too hard. I had a hard day already. Lord, I already put in my time. I know that you call me to disciple my kids, but I deserve this time. I deserve the video games. Friends, it's not the video games that you're enslaved to. It's yourself. It's the fact that you are Lord. And we make it into small things. That's where our lordship of self comes out and shows itself. We're presenting our members as tribute to self, honoring ourself. Brothers and sisters, you may not realize it, but all day long you are offering tribute to a sovereign because we are built to be subjects under the command of another We are never simply existing on our own. That is an impossibility for any created thing. We do not possess the characteristic that allows us to do so. It's the characteristic we've talked about before, aseity. The quality or state of being self-derived, self-originated, specifically the absolute self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy of God. We cannot be God. And so by our very nature, we need We require a protecting, authoritative Lord. Throughout history, one of the main reasons you would commit to being a subject of a Lord or a government was for their protection. Was for their protection. It's one of the primary reasons civic government exists is to protect its people. And we need the Lord to protect us from the enticing power of our own sinfulness. To dismiss this idea is to believe that we, are, we as humans are self-sufficient. It is to believe that we have an innate goodness without reliance upon God. It is to misunderstand the evil in the world and the kingdom of darkness. That we can take care of ourselves and need no one else. You see this right now. Uh, I know I sound political here, but this is just an example. Defund the police. We don't need any protection because humanity is innately good. Wait! I just got mugged. Bring the police back. I need protection. It's an example of how off we are and how lost we are in the midst of this worldview that's taken over, even among the church, that we are innately good. We are innately uh, people that can be self-sufficient. But this is patently false. We are creatures, not creators. We are subjects, not rulers. And so everything we do all day long is to offer tribute to a ruler. Paul's point is that when we knowingly, consciously present our minds, bodies, and emotions to something, we are making ourselves slaves to it. Think about your job. You probably, if you work, spend the majority of your time at a job 
Why? Well, because you sleep for eight or nine hours, you eat, you do things around the house, you got a little bit of time to yourself, and the rest of the time you're working for an employer. Who's your Lord over your employment? Are you working for the man? Or are you working for the weekend? Or are you working for retirement? Or are you doing everything for Jesus Christ? See, when people complain about their boss or their work, you're not complaining about your work. You're complaining about which Lord is getting tribute, and you're mad that this Lord isn't getting more tribute. We all are serving someone at all points of the day. Perhaps that's something physical, such as an addiction, or maybe it's a hobby that consumes you. The time you give to it, above all else, shows that you are enslaved to it. For others, it might be a romantic ideal of the perfect life that you were owed by God. And the depression and discontentment in your life is evidence that you were stuck in a resentment of God and others that life hasn't been formed the way you want. For others, it might be an attitude, anger, bitterness towards someone you're called to love, resentment. When you present your mind and heart and relationship over to these things, you are declaring sin as your Lord. And friends, these will lead to nothing but death. Whereas obedience to Christ will lead to righteousness and true freedom from sin, obedience to Christ and his will and worldview as declared in his word is the path to righteousness and to life and to freedom. And one of the greatest signs of a false Lord is that it will incite you to defend it, as maybe it might be happening in your own heart right now, even as I preach. Whereas the true Lord does not need our defense. It's clear that he is Lord. You cannot exist, I cannot exist a little bit under service to Christ, and then the rest of your life under service to sin and the passions that it incites. You will serve one and only one master. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In this case, he was talking in the context of serving God or money, but it applies to any master. You will either hate sin or you will be enslaved by it. Do any of these masters I've mentioned resonate with you? Are any of these emotions or thought patterns reigning over your life? Perhaps you have simply become so habituated in giving tribute to yourself, tribute to sin, that you have forgotten that you have been bought to serve under a new master. And that is what our Lord is reminding all of us of today. And Paul cements this idea for us next as he gives confirmation that liberty was purchased by a new Lord. Confirmation that liberty was purchased by a new Lord. And yes, I am fulfilling my baptistic tendencies today with all C's. <laughs> Consideration of the liberty God has given. Clarification that liberty does not equal lordship. And now, confirmation that liberty was purchased by a new lord. We see this in verses 17 through 19. All of this language of presenting ourselves as tribute can become quite daunting. It can seem like a huge weight on our shoulders. Many of us, probably most of us in this room, myself included, if not all of us, respond to this command and contrast of Paul's words here with a feeling of failure, a feeling of condemnation. We see our lives and realize that on many days, it seems as if we're losing the fight to present ourselves as subjects to Christ. Do you feel like that? I feel like that. 
Our innate willpower does not seem strong enough to help us present ourselves to Christ. Maybe that's you this morning. But friends, that is the exact reason that Paul says what he says next. Look at what he says next, verse 17. But thanks be to God. Everybody read that with me. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For Paul knows that we are not strong enough to do it on our own. We need Christ. We need the Holy Spirit of God every moment of every day, do we not? We were once slaves of sin, obedient only to the reign of its passions. But notice the grammatical structure here, friends. It's very important. We have become obedient. Our natural state as Christians who have been saved by Christ is that we have already been changed. Our affections have now been changed to be towards obedience to God's rule. We have been changed. It is no longer an impossibility to overpower sin in our lives because something drastic has changed at our core. And it is not just an external habit that we've put in place. Something has changed at the very core of our being. Our very motivations are no longer the previous passions, but they are something new. What does he say has changed? We have become, he says, obedient from the heart. This language is referencing the Old Testament prophetic promise given of the new covenant that God promised to his people that has been fulfilled in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We looked at this very promise last week from the vantage point of Jeremiah. So this week, let's look at the promise from the vantage point of Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. Prior to Christ, God the Father, through his prophets, promised, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you, what does that say? a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, friends, by having the Holy Spirit reigning on that throne in our lives, not self-contained, that's why I fight so hard against the idea that if I have brought Jesus into my heart as if you've got him locked up in a little locket that only you can claim. No, the Spirit of God, who's way more powerful and bigger than you or I, has placed a portion of himself in us so that Jesus can reign on the throne of our hearts. The work of salvation is God making a new covenant with us, his people, and he did so by cleansing us with the precious blood of Christ. His blood washed us clean from all our rebelliousness against him that left us impure and unholy before him. His resurrection cleansed us from all our idolatry as well because it opened our eyes to the fact that he alone has the power of life and death. 
And as part of this change, he instilled into us a new heart, new affections, new desires, new priorities. And friends, this is God's work alone. You don't get to choose them, you're given them. How do we know that Paul is saying the same thing as what I'm saying here? Look at our passage from Romans, and again, see the grammatical structure. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, notice this, to which you were committed. You didn't choose to commit yourself there. The verb committed here is what's called an aorist passive indicative. It indicates a state change to the object, which is us. The subject is the one who has done the committing. God is the one who has committed his people to a heart change to this standard of teaching, which is his word. Notice the tense throughout it at at all points. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now this is interesting because Paul is clear at the beginning of this letter that he has not ever visited this church. Hold on to that for a second. He's not ever visited this church. He does not even know the people who are in it. So how can he be so confident to say that this has happened to these individuals? Because Paul knows that if someone has been granted salvation by the Spirit of God, this is the case for that person, no matter who you are. He knows your state and mine thousands of years before we existed. If you are Christ's, this is who you are. He knows who they are, and he knows who you are. God has committed us to his word. Friends, your Lord has committed you to his word. He has changed our heart to be obedient to his teaching. He did so by purchasing us off the slave block of our sin and bringing us into his own household and making us subject as slaves to his rule and mastery. And if any of us are offended by his use of these pictures and language, He makes it very clear that he is using these ideas because there just is really not another earthly metaphor that works in this case, as well as Lord and slave. And so he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of natural limitations, he says. In other words, the metaphor breaks down because all earthly masters pale in comparison to the loving and benevolent king, Jesus the Christ. A tyrannical, oppressive slave master would sit idly by while the slave works themselves to death, taking any and all profit from their work. But think of what, about what Paul has been saying this whole time. Who is it the, who's the one that has done the work? Christ. That's why it's grace. The law requires you to manifest this work on your own. Grace requires you to depend upon the one who is already and is now accomplishing the work. He has given everything so that you and I might share in the gain with him. Is he a tyrannical tyrant of a boss, a horrible master, an oppressive king? No, friends, he's the exact opposite. He is the one we were created to follow. And Paul understands this. Remember how he identifies himself at the beginning of the letter. You can see it up there on the screen. Paul, a servant, and that word can also be translated slave, of Christ Jesus. 
called to be an apostle, set apart for the good news of God. And what is the good news that he is speaking so clearly here seven chapters later? That it is good news that we have been purchased off the slave block of sin and made his slaves. And so Paul concludes, just as you once served at the pleasure of your sin, which simply led to impurity and lawlessness that was reflected by its comparison to God's law, now you are able to present yourselves to God, slaves to righteousness. And in presenting your heart, mind, body, and spirit to God, it will lead to your sanctification. Friends, this imagery is so important because it captures for us what our practical application looks like. Have you ever seen a movie that shows what tribute to a ruler looked like? Many of you have seen the Exodus, right? The old movie about the Exodus. The Ten Commandments. There's a scene in there where usually it begins with some form of celebratory presentation to the king and procession, and you would come into his presence offering gifts and honor and praise. You would show reverence to him as sovereign. Then someone would come forward humbly and request permission to enter the presence of the king. And if it was granted, they would then approach the throne in humble prostration, bringing their gift to him and laying it before his feet. And then the same person would declare their allegiance and would let the sovereign know that they were his loyal subject. Friends, this imagery should set the tone for how we pray to our king because he has already invited us into his presence. And so our prayers need to declare that we are his and that we need him. Our prayers are where we present ourselves as his tribute. Do, the, do you do that every morning? We tell him that we are his humble servants. We give our lives for his will and his warfare and we surrender our rights to him. And we ask him to seat himself on the throne of our hearts, to remember that we are his and not our own. Friends, is this how you begin every morning? Brothers and sisters, what would our lives look like if we engaged daily in ongoing prayer in this fashion? What if we prayed for ourselves with this need for God's provision of grace on our lips constantly, and not just for ourselves, but for one another? What if we prayed for every person in the directory, Lord, help them to understand that they are your servant. Change their affections to follow you. And not just in the morning, but what if we prayed this throughout the day as, as we go to, and even as we go to sleep at night? To be slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ is not like what it is to be a slave to sin. We are not needing to do it on our own. We are not working to the bone. We are simply depending upon him. So if there is any work at all, it's like when your child comes into your arms as a parent and flops into it. That is what we are doing to the Lord, is, Lord, I can't stand anymore without you. Please hold me. Please take me. Please animate me. R.C. Sproul said it well. As Christians, we live under grace. We began the Christian life in grace. We continue to live the Christian life in grace. And the Christian life will be completed by grace. The grace of God is to rule our lives. So many of us, I think, in this room, we have that moment of grace. Yes, he saved me, and now I have to get to work. And we try as hard as we can with white knuckles, trying to be better, and then we fail and condemn ourselves when we should have taken the same amount of energy and just flopped into the arms of the Lord, invested in his word, begged him in prayer, spent time in fellowship, and said, Lord, I can't do it without you and your people and your word and your spirit. Brothers and sisters, I believe that the reason some of us, many of us in this room, hit such difficulty in obeying our Lord is because we have made a dividing line in our lives. 
Lines of division where we say, this is under Christ and this is not. This is where I need Christ's help and this is where I will go about changing things on my own. Where are those dividing lines in your life? Where have you said, Christ is sufficient to help here, but he's kind of overpowered over here. I should probably get a different Savior and Lord for this one. Brothers and sisters, my heart has become heavy over the last few years as I've watched these dividing lines go up for some in this church. As you've encountered difficulties in your lives, I've watched as some have laid aside the truth of God's word because the path it took was too difficult. And so you decided that the difficulty meant that God and his word and his spirit were no longer sufficient. And what I'm about to say, please take with a grain of salt, because I'm human, and this is just an observation. This is a piece I'm not taking directly from the word, but it is an application. One of the greatest areas that I've seen this occur in this church is in our mental and emotional lives. I've watched as some in this church, in many cases unknowingly, turn from reliance upon God's word to the enticing worldview of therapeutic views and tools. I have watched many respond to moments of difficult sanctification where God intends to do a work right in the midst of the difficulty and I've seen responses of impatient desire to simply escape the difficulty as if that were the goal. And often this has resulted in turning instead to medication to synthetically change the brain rather than pursuing the heart work with Christ that is necessary. And I want to be so careful and so gentle here. Brothers and sisters, you know me. You know that I know the positive uses of medication and therapeutic tools. And I think there is a time to use medication appropriately for mental health issues, just as there is a time to use medication for physical health issues. But I think that situations where they are needed are far fewer, and the time that should be spent on them is far smaller than the world in most cases, and in many cases, well-meaning counselors will tell you. And so the time has come for me as a loving shepherd to lovingly remind you, dear brothers and sisters, that medication is never the ultimate solution to issues of the heart or issues of obedience, because medication cannot change the heart. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And sometimes the very trial that is eased by medication is the very trial that God intended for your sanctification, for your discipline, for your growth and maturity, and for your dependence upon him. Please do not hear me as saying all medication is bad and good Christians don't take medication. Hear me clearly. That is not what I am saying. I am saying we have become too reliant upon it. Now, if this strikes a chord for you, before you dismiss me or see me as ignorant or condemning, please know that I am here not to shame you or condemn you. I am here to talk with you. And I want to talk with you about whether or not you need to make a change in your view and your use of medication and therapeutic tools. 
I am tired as a pastor of people opening up their Enneagram profile rather than the Word of God. I am tired as a pastor of people relying upon medication to change their brain rather than Jesus to change their heart. We need a course correction. Therapeutic ideas and interventions are just that. They're tools. They are never the solution. Brothers and sisters, please hear my heart. I am jealous for you that you might be enslaved to one master alone. I hope you hear my heart and love for you in this example and application of what we're discussing. In those places divided off from Christ, we are enslaving ourselves to a master other than our benevolent Lord. And if we do this long enough, it will lead somewhere that we do not intend for all of our lives. Being presented to a master leads us on a trajectory towards an end. And that is what Paul finishes with as he declares what the compensation is under each Lord in verses 20 through 23. He says this in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is such an odd closure to this section. It's almost as if Paul is being a bit sarcastic here. When you really read Paul, friends, he was sarcastic. He would have been fun. He would have been fun to hang out with at parties, I'm sure, right? He was sarcastic. And he begins with this idea that we did have freedom, in a sense, when we were our own master. But it was the lie of true freedom because all that really existed was freedom from righteousness, freedom from eternal life, freedom from unity with God. Freedom from obedience to God. He's being sarcastic. And the atheist that desires to be their own Lord will say, amen. But Paul continues by pointing out the result and fruit of that so-called freedom. The only result was death, the ultimate slave master of mankind. And by trying to grab that freedom rather than submitting to your creator, you were simply enslaving yourself to the eventual tyrant of death. But now, he says, you have gained liberty from sin instead. You have been made slaves of God. And so the fruit of your life is growth and obedience to him, growth and sanctification. For every moment that we give over to Christ in obedience to his holy will, will reap fruit of further obedience and further holiness. And the ultimate end of this is full unity and union with him and his bride, the church, in which you will reap eternal life with him under his perfect reign. And Paul finishes a bit tongue-in-cheek here with this well-known verse in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But again, notice his sarcasm. Friends, do slaves get wages? The answer is no. They simply work to the death, never having gained anything but death. But what we have gained from Christ is beyond wages. It's nothing we could earn, for it cannot be earned. It is grace. It is a free gift of liberty from our sin, a free gift of illumination of God's goodness, 
a free gift of unity with him by the Spirit, which will result in eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To God be the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and for all eternity. Amen. Friend, if you are here today and you believe you have the liberty and freedom to live life however you like, depending upon no one, answering to no one, God is so graciously giving you the truth today that that is an impossibility. For in your belief that you are free from judgment and accountability, you are really only free from the goodness and love of God. And that is not freedom at all. You are enslaved in sin and rebellion, and that will only lead eventually to death and destruction for all eternity. Friend, I want you to know that hell is full of those who are free from God's love, creatures who spend eternity declaring their own lordship. What a terrible place to exist. But today, Christ is reaching out to you and inviting you to be freed from the destructive master of your own passions so that you might live under the protection of his loving rule. And if that is you, we as pastors would love to talk with you and walk with you. The guys who stand up here and help me with a benediction at the end, we would love to talk with you and pray with you and walk with you in what it is to have Christ as Lord. For those in this room that are already in Christ, friends, today our biggest application is to accept, hold on to, and apply the identity that we have that we have been given a gift this morning because God has reminded us who we are. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. And we were brought under the protection of a wonderful Lord who wants us to fight on his behalf against the greatest enemy, which is sin and death. And he is a Lord who has freed us from the oppression of our sin and demanding lordship and given us the gift of grace. He has changed our heart. He has made our affections toward him, and he has given us the promise of eternal life. And when we doubt his goodness, we can simply turn to the cross of Calvary, Calvary that accomplished all of this and see that he is not a tyrant that requires fruitless labor until death. He is the glorious master who laid down his life for his servants so that our labor in him might end in the most bountiful fruit that can exist, his glory and our sanctification. This morning, don't push aside conviction that the Lord might have brought you by the Spirit. Work through it, walk through it, and I want to walk through it with you. Don't just wander off into condemnation. Ask the question, who is my Lord? How do I display it? And how can I stand in the fullness of the truth that I am Jesus's? Jesus is my Lord. For some of you, that may mean that you finally have to surrender your heart to Christ, even though you've proclaimed to be a Christian for many years. For some of you, that means simply repentance because you are his, but you've been wandering away, and today is the day he's calling you back into full submission of your life to him. I pray that he accomplishes that by his spirit this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, in today's time and age, we bristle at these words of slave and master, and rightly so. There was horrific slavery that is part of our history. But Lord, we know that what Paul is stating here is a reality, that we are under the oppressive lordship of our own sin and our own, our own desires for life to be how we want it. 
And you have purchased us off of that slave block, brought us out of servitude to that master and made us your own. And that is good news. It is the gospel because we have been made yours and you are a perfect and benevolent and loving master who gave his very life to make this all possible. Help us to understand that good news this morning, that it is good news that we have become your servants by your work. We love you and we praise you and we, help, uh, we hope, Lord, that you would help us change our affections, change our worldview, change our perspective so that we can truly sit under your lordship. We know that that is only possible by your work in our hearts and so we invite you now, Lord, to break our hearts of stone, to change them into hearts that honor you. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that more and more every day until glory comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.